0: Welcome to Tripod, this is a series of podcasts by the Technology Transfer Office in Trinity College Dublin, Ireland, aimed at highlighting some of the innovative research and ideas emerging from Trinity. I'm Edward O'Loughlin and I'm doing an Executive MBA in Trinity Business School. My co-host is Dr John Whelan, Technology Transfer Manager in Trinity. Our guest today is Professor Iris Muller from the Geography Department in Trinity. And until recently, she was based at Cambridge University in the UK. She's going to talk to us today about her research around the area of changing coastal dynamics, flood risks impacted by climate change and so on. You're very welcome to Tripod Iris.
1: Hello, thank you. Can you
0: maybe begin by telling us a little bit how you originally got interested in this whole area of coastal defences and coastal dynamics?
1: Mm. Um yeah, thanks for having me here today. Um, I I it really started when I was quite young. Um, I think I was probably about seven or eight when uh, my father, who was an artist, uh, funnily enough, and I, I went more into the science direction, but he took me out on some fishing boats of a, of a friend of his on the river Elbe in Germany, which is where I was born. And um, the fisherman was telling me about the pollution of that river and the changes to the port. And I just remember thinking that um, I got very interested in the fact that humans can alter their environment to such a degree that the humans, the very humans who depend on that environment, then... Um, suffer from that alteration, you know, and um, this fisherman was catching much, many fewer fish and, um, you know, turned into a sort of environmental protest In the end of the day. Um, but I've always been interested in the interaction between humans, the human society and the environment that we all depend on um, and how we manage that, you know, our dependency on the environment at one point, uh, the one time, and also... The fact that that environment is very dynamic, we influence that dynamic, and we then suffer the consequences of that influence. Mm -hmm. And we still haven't really got it right, I Mm. think, since then. You know, that's now a long time ago, and climate change wasn't even on the agenda then. Mm. But you can see that now, even though we've moved on and we, we acknowledge the scientific consensus around climate change and all the implications of that for the coast, for example, we are still not that much further ahead really in terms of knowing how we can negotiate this influence we have on the environment and you know we're still suffering consequences of doing the wrong thing
2: yeah like myself like as a baby boomer i sometimes feel like telling these millennials we knew about this you know we were aware about this i remember getting a pollution kit as a christmas present when i was maybe 10 you know this would have been in the 70s and going out taking samples and you know, Litmus paper. You know, it was well known, yeah. and it's just yeah. But that the key thing is, the, the action was slow, and now the seriousness has really come back to haunt us.
1: Yeah. yeah. What type so of I fish? You don't know
2: what type of fish were in the <laughs> I know that's a hard question. I'm interested.
1: <laughs> what in fish. I do know is that that same fisherman went over to Ireland. Uh, Let's <laughs> just start fishing in Ireland as a result <laughs> of that. But then I stopped following these. Uh, that particular storyline. But it is, I mean, it's, I guess it's through that beginning that I then decided to you know, think about what do I want to do with my life, where do I want to go, what mm. do I want to study, and, and I chose the subject of geography for the very reason mm. that it was the only subject that I could see that really, uh, from the outset, brought the understanding of the physical environment around us, mm. the natural environment around us, together with an understanding of how humans behave, work, you know, the human how human society can be organized and interact with that environment. Mm. And that's how I eventually ended up, you know, with a geography degree and then a PhD that took me into the study of coastal wetlands and how they respond to sea level rise. Mm.
0: And could you tell us a bit how that research impacts with the the real world, as you said, to make that positive impact on the physical environment for society?
1: Um, yeah, so there are lots of different levels at which the research on coastal dynamics in general can interface with society and does interface with society. And it really starts when you're working in the university context, mm. I guess, you know, the most obvious and immediate impact is on the people we teach as part of that and a lot of the the undergraduates who i've taught in my time thus far have gone out to work um, in government within the private sector advising government Mm -hmm. or within non-government organizations uh in terms of you know how we better manage our coastline and so it's a quite a nice thing to see that you know we're influencing my teaching is always influenced by my research so it's it's nice to see that through that avenue um, we have an influence on society because there's now people out there you know, who have this knowledge who are trying to make a difference in their everyday life in the planning sector and the policy sector and so on but the other way in which we interface with society is of course more directly so that we you know we tend to get approached by uh, local governments, by um, engineering companies who now do a lot of the consulting for governments in terms of how we should manage particular areas of the coast into the future. But also by sort of national government organisations. So you know, in the UK, that would be the Environment Agency. Here, I guess it'd be the you know the EPA or you mm. know planning bodies. Um, who will need to draw on our knowledge in order to um, make decisions as to how to, um, well, how to think about different time scales over which they might plan into the future, for example. You know, knowledge about how much of a sea level rise are we expecting within the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years? And what impact does that have on the way in which the coast is likely to change? Um, You know, there's so many different drivers that determine whether a particular beach loses or gains sediment, whether a particular coastal wetland is likely to lose in area or gain in area, and, um, and whether sediment is going to silt up a river channel or you know whether there's going to be erosion of soft cliffs and, and so on. It's a really The coast is a really, really complex hmm. system, and it's very open, and with climate change not just sea level rise, but also changes in storminess, in frequency of storms, intensity of storms. We kind of bring all of that knowledge together, and then we get asked by you know, all sorts of different bodies to then supply them with that information.
2: But they have, a, I imagine they have a kind of a shorter time frame, you know, to think. I mean, if we lived in... Yeah. Sometimes we look at envy for various reasons, that China, with a kind of totalitarian regime, at least they can take these long-term views, whatever you may think, that they can think 20 years ahead. But, you know, in Europe or in the Western world, it's, it's that kind of time frames you have to think of. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah that's right. And that is a big challenge. Um, and it's a really interesting challenge because, of course... You know, I guess anything that is kind of motivated by our political cycle has a sort of, you know, four or five year kind of length Mm, at its mm. best. Um, And the way things are now, you know, often it's much, much shorter term that political points are trying to be, uh, you know, people are trying to score political points on certain issues. Um, When it comes to, I guess, the interest of, you know, the private sector, that's often also very, you know, shorter term, in that a particular objective has to be met, that you know maybe is more profit motivated than than anything else, um, and and I guess the, the people who sort of find themselves at the um, at the the coalface there are really the, the the local governments, often you know the, those in charge of keeping coastal communities safe um, over time over longer periods of time, they're kind of stuck in the middle there. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing more recently in the UK is really acting as a kind of much longer-term knowledge base for a consortia of local governments who are all struggling with the same kinds of challenges um, and are all, in a way, um, dependent on what happens at the national government level, mm. but can also see that they need to look Further into the future, you know, that with the predictions around climate change, we have got a real problem at our hands. For and,
2: and do you think historically, because of the geographical location of Cambridge, you came to Trinity recently from Cambridge, being, you know, in our business we call it Silicon Fen, you know, mm-hmm. and the fens and being close to Eastern. Isn't, is Cambridge any slang here? Officially, yeah, sorry, my, my UK geography ain't so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, they don't teach UK geography in Ireland. Don't ask Ireland. too
1: much about
2: Ireland. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, you're close to the Norfolk Broads and all that. Does that influence the research in Cambridge a bit?
1: It has influenced yeah. what I've done, yeah, because it's probably, you know, one of the most dynamic bits of coast in northwestern Europe, I would okay. say. and um, the, the tides there, in that the, oh, yeah. there's areas with really high tidal ranges. The vertical difference between low and high water can be up to six meters, and and it's very susceptible to storm surges in mm. the North Sea. Yeah, but I mean, the Irish Sea is, you know, um, yeah. can also, I think, have its moments. And um,
2: oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We forget when you live around here about tides. You know, when you get visitors, I had a visitor from Denmark recently, down in. The, West Clare, and they were looking at ships, you know, or boats in a harbor that were, you know, the, the harbor dried out in low tide. And you know, in, in, in Denmark, you just don't see that, you know, because mm-hmm. it's yep. low, lower tide ranges. Yeah, we, it's pretty, we forget that we're like the channel is some of the highest tides in the world, isn't mm-hmm. it? Right? Mm-hmm. There's my little bits of geography. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always surprising how little
1: we have Appreciate that really, and it's always surprised me to be honest in the UK where I was, you know, seeing undergraduates come in and teaching yeah. them in the first year. and I generally ask how many of you have, you know, grown up in towns that are within an hour's yeah. drive on the coast, and not many of them have any idea about yeah, yeah. how the tides work. Yeah, yeah that's yeah.
2: interesting. Yeah, I remember reading a book as a kid that the UK, the, the furthest you can be from the coast is 80 miles or something, but that's, you know. Mm-hmm. Ireland would be closer That would be less
1: obviously. Mm. yeah but we, we need to I think this is another thing that we do need to try to do in addition to looking ahead uh, for longer timescales now that we have these big societal environmental challenges ahead of us is to actually um, reconnect us with some of those dynamics at the coast that we've you know yeah. Begun to move yeah. away from as a general society, so it's really important I think that we start to put the knowledge of this yeah. dynamism out in the you know in the in the environment into the curriculum for you know, even you know, people at school, you know, kids yeah. at school to become a bit more aware of this and to also feel that, um, you know, they, that when they leave, they have a better understanding of what it means to have a dynamic natural environment. And what that, that, that has a lot of advantages as well as mm. threatening, you know, society um, alongside those.
0: Mm. Well, in the, in the context of Cambridge and research projects around the UK, was there any in particular that you think might be very relevant to, in the Irish context?
1: Um, Yes, so there's a lot of, um, one of the the things I've been working on a lot most recently is really a better, um, a more concerted effort of all of us to understand better what the values are of some of these coastal environments that perhaps we haven't really paid enough attention to. Mm -hmm. And um, one of those is coastal salt marsh areas, for example. I know that in Ireland there's a lot of attention being paid now to peat Mm. And the carbon stored and taken up in, in um, apple and peat regions, which is, uh, you know, it's a great thing to see because that does need to be valued properly and it needs to be built into our, you know, plan- forward planning in terms of what happens uh, to the management of those areas. But there's also actually quite. Um, a lot of salt marsh in Ireland in, within estuaries, and it 's small p- parcels of salt marsh, but it 's mm-hmm. all around the Irish coast, you mm-hmm. know, west, south east, mm-hmm. and northern Ireland of course as well and those um, those environments are very sensitive to a rise in sea level mm-hmm. and they store a lot of carbon mm-hmm. but no one from what I can gather, you know no one has at least recently Mm. Looked at the amount of carbon stored within these environments mm. and how those salt marshes are likely to respond to a future where we we have higher sea levels. Um, and they also, you know, there's a lot of biodiversity um, that that is generated within those environments. They're very particular um, environments where plants are adapted to saltwater inundation, which is very rare and therefore there's a whole ecosystem that builds around that of insects invertebrates, and, and then of, cor- of course mm. birds and often these are really internationally important um, birds, that migratory birds that will then spend a little bit of time on the Irish salt marshes and then migrate northwards or southwards and you know, if those salt marshes get lost then that mm. service to the global sure. biodiversity mm. um, is yeah. also lost
2: yeah, We don't have the term kind of we don't talk, think about salt marshes in Irish kind of vernacular. I don't know, mm. maybe there's another word, but I couldn't probably think of So even though I grew up in an estuary, mm. I wouldn't think of the word salt marsh, you know. Yeah. It's interesting, it's just yeah. terminology. Yeah,
1: but they're, there's, you know, they do, they're very different type, but that yeah. makes them quite interesting because they're, mm. they're quite small. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're much more influenced by the particular setting within which they occur. Mm -hmm. But they're frequent. I have have on my desk a report Mm -hmm. of the late 70s, early 80s of an inventory of all of those salt marshes. Mm -hmm. And they're potentially really very important.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And related to that, um, like having built up such an expertise in the UK Mm -hmm. setting, Mm -hmm. I, I am a little curious What was it in particular that attracted you to relocate to Trinity? Was it partly the geography department here or was it some of these environments and curious environments you're talking about around the coast?
1: I think, yeah, I think it was both. I mean, Mm -hmm. Ireland, in terms of its coastline, is really fascinating because it is so varied and and it is so accessible and varied. And I didn't really have, you know, in Cambridge I had East Anglia, but it's Mm -hmm. all quite you know soft sedimentary coast Mm. um and even being in Cambridge I've always enjoyed being within sort of an hour or two's drive of of quite a varied coastline but not as varied as Ireland so Mm. here I'm really looking forward to just exploring that variety a bit more Mm. um And the other thing, just by way of my my research work, um, which makes in fact makes Dublin quite unique, is places like North Bull Island in -hmm. in Dublin Bay, which is just fascinating. And I've been involved in um, some projects where we've looked at the urban context and how coastal wetlands can be used in the urban context to um, mitigate flood risk
2: Mm.
1: under different climate futures. And you look at North Bull Island, and in fact, it's a very artificial place in some respects, mm. because it it's only really kind of kicked off in its evolution since the construction of the North Wall. Mm. Um, but in other respects, it's a, it's a beautiful mm. place with a lot of you know, dynamism, natural dynamism that, that happens. It's managed, but, you know, so... There are places like that that I didn't have over in, in the UK that were, you know, and from that respect, that's hugely fascinating to me and I look forward to doing some more research mm. um, in those places. But the other thing that attracted me here, aside from the research, research side, was um, the opportunity to uh, be in a slightly more strategic position with respect to the subject of geography. Um, and it's really as we started out saying at the beginning, I think that geography is a subject that we we really have to pay attention to. If we want our next generation um, of professionals to come out of the school leaving and tertiary sector education and have the skills that we collectively as a society have to have to find workable solutions towards living in a changed climate future, Mm And you know, solutions that damage us and you know, our global society as little as possible in that path. Because we're already locked into sea level rise. There's nothing we can do. Even if we stop our carbon emissions now, we are dealing you know, with at least 50, 60 centimetres of sea level rise by the end of the century. Um and then it's variable, of course, depending on which part of the coast you're on, because there's also regional controls on the on the sea level. But those are phenomenal challenges, and if we don't have our, you know, young adults come through an education that at least gives at least some of them the ability to integrate a really wide set of disciplines in their thinking from the outset. Mm -hmm. And fair enough, we need others who need to be specialists in particular areas, but we need some who come out of a tertiary education with a degree where the the fundamental um, nature of that degree has taught them to think all the way from politics Mm -hmm. through to how waves and a rise in sea level shifts, beach, sand around, you know, just an appreciation of that full breadth of knowledge.
2: So is that why, this is kind of my own ignorance, as we were talking earlier, geography traditionally sits within humanities um, and social science. And it's a bit like geology too, is a little bit kind of on its own. It's more, it's in STEM, but it's that kind of broad thinking approach is that, is that historically, and do you think it's correct, or or is it just compartment putting things into categories? Is it a classification problem that's kind of irrelevant,
1: or, mm-hmm. or um, you mean the fact that geography yeah. sits within these university yeah, yeah. structures, so it, it makes yeah. it really difficult to, yeah. to handle and manage? Yeah, I I, <laughs> yeah. I I'm really looking forward to a conversation with lots yeah. of individuals around this, and because you know in Trinity it sits in the science. In some universities, geography finds itself in the arts and humanities, and other universities it finds itself in the science side of things. In Trinity, it's in the School of Natural Sciences. But whichever way you place it, whichever direction it's placed, it then has implications for how, you know, for example, funding for research is organised, how students enroll in that subject and it generally tends to matter whether they come from the sciences or the humanities because there are assumptions that are being made about the resources that the students need through their education and those resources then flow to the schools and departments and and to have a subject that is at the outset very cross-disciplinary gives everybody you know understandably, a headache Hmm. (laughs) in that kind of context. But I think it is something that we do need to solve. And if we don't solve it, we do that at our peril. And I, um, I have just seen this in my time of being involved in teaching geography and watching graduates go out into the world and taking on job opportunities. They are all making a phenomenal difference in what they're doing because they have this very broad understanding as well as some of them becoming more specialised in sub-areas after this, but it's this kind of, these formative years, you know, just as you leave school, and when you have your university education, I think there's something also about an individual's experience in their own life of that time that they're particularly receptive Mm -hmm. to this interdisciplinary thinking.
2: Yeah, and no, it really sits between yeah, both stools. I didn't, and in Cambridge, was it in humanities? Or no, also, in yeah,
1: in the sciences. Yeah, my, I think
2: it's because I went, I didn't go to Trinity, I went to Galway. I think in Galway it was in the art side, so the, my perception is probably mm. a little bit different. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, it shouldn't matter, but it does because of funding and perception. It's mm. important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think
1: my, my worry is that when it starts to matter so much that it affects the um, the efficiency of working, you know, within that discipline, or even the future of that discipline, that would be awful. You know, if a discipline struggled yeah. just because of the structures around it, even though it makes complete sense to have it.
0: Yeah.
1: Hmm. I was going to say not not wanting to be
0: sensationalist or anything, but when you say maybe to fifty to sixty centimeters of rising sea levels before the end of the century what what do you think that means in practice for an island like ireland like where we are very prone to um a lot of tidal activity we're very prone to occasional big storms and so on what what practical impact and then what should we be doing about it
1: Mm. um Yeah, so this is always the thing where you're thinking about a process that's very slow and gradual. Mm. That rise in sea level, we're not, you know, it's a gradual, slow Mm. process. And actually what matters much more to an island like Ireland is Mm. is, and where Ireland is positioned here in the mid-latitudes with, you know, strong westerly winds and storms tracking across from the Atlantic, and sometimes we get the um, tropical hurricanes that, you know, turn into... Uh, atlantic storm systems and so it's really much i think the how the climatic changes will be felt are really much more in terms of the frequency and magnitude of Mm. extreme events Mm. that then happens on this backdrop of a slow rise in Mm. sea level and coastal environments natural coastal environments you know places like north bull island you know but other other sort of sedimentary landforms will slowly adapt to this kind of slow rise in sea level but it can be punctuated by these extreme events because they they are the events when a lot of wave energy is thrown at the coastal landscape effectively when a lot of sediment can be released transported somewhere else and deposited somewhere else and so on. so it's Understanding how these extreme events mm-hmm. will cause erosion and shifting of landforms and sediments. And if we understand that better, then we can understand better how coastal property and infrastructure is put at risk mm-hmm. through coastal erosion. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have the problem of coastal flooding, and that, of course, has to include a consideration of Terrestrial flooding, river flooding, mm-hmm. alongside it. Um, one thing that we often talked about uh, in terms of cities like London, but you know, Dublin is also falls into that category where you have significant freshwater input through um, the river, through the Liffey into you know into mm-hmm. the Irish Sea and Dublin Bay. And if you have a storm event that brings a lot of rainfall. That rain makes it very quickly down the Liffey. You know, the water levels rise in the river, mm-hmm. and then you have the same storm potentially, which brings strong onshore winds and low air pressure, which sucks up the water level in Dublin Bay in the Irish Sea. And then you have a kind of double whammy effectively, where you have intense rainfall on the landward side, high water levels on the seaward side, and then you have a flooding problem mm-hmm. you know, on top of the potential effect of high-energy storms shifting a lot of material around.
2: Mm. Like, we know anecdotally, again, as children going to beaches in the west of Ireland, that, and everywhere, you know, it is so dynamic when you think about it, because yeah. they change every, every summer, every spring when you go back to West Clare, where we used to go, the beach would be different. And sometimes it would be more sand and sometimes it would be less yeah. because there would have been a storm and yeah. it'd be all shingled somewhere where it wasn't. Even Killiney Beach out in Dublin mm. at the moment it's really sandy. Yeah. Mm. And it's not normally that sandy yeah. because you get yeah, you get yeah. that's just an illustration yeah. of the dynamicism.
1: Yeah. But I mean you asked me what we need to do, you know, about this or mm. what can we do about it. One of the one of the things that is happening at the moment, we are really living at the the the, the very the of the, the like the, the you know the initial phase of what some of my colleagues call the remote sensing revolution, because we're now having you know capability, technological capability that we never used to have at our fingertips. Mm. In order to, and this has made a huge difference also in the in terms of the uh, climate change research, in that the satellite technology we now have means that we can be so much more certain about some of our estimates. Mm. And that'll go looking forward, the resolution of the satellites is getting better and better and better as we speak. And to be using, you know, so that beach somewhere in in Galway, you know, where there might not be people living there anymore, but you have a satellite that flies over every day. (laughs) That can tell. And you can use our computing technology um, to in order to analyse that data you know we're now using artificial intelligence to start to use the data that we gather mm. across larger areas of the coast from satellite to see whether we can learn something about you know okay something's changes here as mm. a result of these weather patterns and that history of weather that preceded this event and can we see some can we see a relationship there that we then can use to explain what happened in the adjacent area or you know how are these areas connected with each other and that's something that we weren't able to do in the past because mm. regular monitoring is so difficult in environments where you can't easily get to. Mm. You know, if you do get there, it's hazardous, treacherous, and certainly during an extreme event, you wouldn't want to be standing sure. out on the North Bull Island beach. <laughs>
2: yeah. Something that struck yeah. me very, Bull Island, you mentioned Bull Island, that, so it was the initial dredging of Dublin that caused and and the putting the North Pool Wall and the South Pool Wall which created that phenomenon. Yeah.
1: So that yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it was understandable that you have to have the Liffey navigable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you try and find a solution to uh, to that, and the and the solution was then to construct the North Wall um, in order to make sure that the you know none of the sandies silty material that's accumulating could get back down into the liffy and so you've had if you look at North Bull Island from the top you know aerial photograph or space you can see that it widens towards the south towards the wall and all of that sediment is really kind of built up against that artificial structure Um, but it has created a um, a sort of melee of different environments you've got tidal flats there with really rich invertebrate um, ecosystems on them Uh, salt marsh ecosystems and then you have uh, dunes Mm. with their own ecosystems there and then the beach of course and all of that is actually not just providing you with a lot of economic value Mm. because you've got carbon locked up in that you know which can convert directly into uh, a carbon trading unit effectively Um, but it also you know it's it's an environment that protects the hinterland yeah. from what those really big storm events. If they happen, the waves can't get yeah. to
2: yeah. The, so the Yeah, the, it's, a, it's changing all the time. And you mentioned earlier, too, that so peat, peatlands and bogs, are they higher in carbon sequestration than, say, a forest would be? Are they comparable? I know it might be...
1: Yeah, might be so a the, so I don't know for upland upland peats mm-hmm. I'm not really the right yeah. person to speak. Yeah. Well, I should, probably should know, but I don't have those figures at the top of my head. And I, as with all of these things, I suspect it depends a lot on um, location, you know, whereabouts mm-hmm. you are, and also on climatic factors, which determines the growth rate of the mm-hmm. vegetation, biological element of of that. But in in salt marshes and certainly mangroves in the tropics. Um, you find a range of carbon sequestration, carbon uptake from the atmosphere that can exceed tropical rainforests quite easily yeah.
2: no, That's very interesting because I saw in London, you've probably seen there's a few cities have brought in these benches with, they say, which are equivalent to 20 trees, now this is the kind of bad science that yeah. you kind of say 20, but they're made they have moss, they're like 5 metres high and they have lots of moss Mm-hmm. and they have special plants in it and they say it's the equivalent of 20 trees, one of these uh, benches for uh, sequestering carbon but they do look, maybe they're using similar mm-hmm. plants mm-hmm. so maybe that's something I wasn't aware of but I just don't like this idea of saying 20 trees what type of trees, how do you measure a tree yeah. <laughs> it could be the smallest tree ever but
1: that's the media say, for you <laughs> yeah I mean if you if you look at this you know the the thing about coastal wetlands is that they um you have a burial of what is produced through the plants so the plants Mm -hmm. that grow they take up the carbon they build their root systems Mm -hmm. and they drop their leaves you know Mm -hmm. over time and the organic material ends up on the soil and then that gets covered periodically by tides or by storms Mm -hmm. with fine sediments that come in from the tide or, you know, for, through wave action or whatever, and they accumulate on the surface, and they bury the carbon. yeah. And then the carbon doesn't get recycled mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. to the atmosphere yeah, yeah. because it get, it's locked away yeah. below the layer of biological activity, and um, and that is why, even though you know the plants are nowhere near as diverse as those in the tropical rainforest, and you think, you know, there's And the climate is not as conducive to plant growth often when you get to higher latitudes. But actually, the storage of carbon can be really significant as a result of that. Mm
0: -hmm. I I think on the positive side, there there certainly are signs now, even like you think in the farming side and the whole food production side in Ireland and Europe generally, that the importance of, of this environment and, and what can and should be done to ensure that it's more in harmony with the needs of nature. And so I think there is hope for, for better protection of these coastal areas, and because uh, I think it's, it's, it's becoming a broader understanding and acceptance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And the tourist values, you know, there's so much value.
0: Yeah. I think it's deep, or, deeper, I yeah. think that there's a deeper concern like with the movements we're seeing now. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I, yeah, I think we are now beginning to recognise that just to value the natural environment in monetary mm. terms is always dependent on what at that particular time in our human history mm. we regard as a marketable thing um, and that may change. You know, 30 years ago, we didn't have carbon trading. We didn't have that kind of way or that currency available to us. And who knows, you know, what the future might hold. And and it's actually if we wait that long mm. until we've recognised something else and realised that we can somehow convert it. Oh, and there's a lot of mm. problems with even converting the stuff into economic, you know, money value in the first place. Mm. But the recognition that we need this, those environments in order to sustain humans on this planet is mm. there regardless yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: but the argument sometimes that comes up is that it does happen so gradually that it creates opportunities you know elsewhere you know that it, okay mm. you may lose a salt marsh here but you'll create one somewhere else mm-hmm. perhaps and again maybe that's where the artificial intelligence and the modelling comes in yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. exactly that, that's mm. often a discussion we have about erosion you know people complain about coastal erosion mm-hmm. in one place and Actually, a lot of the time, the material that's yeah, up somewhere else is yeah. a service mm. to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah that's you know?
2: interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You lose, um, it's a trade-off. Everything—it's like the third law or second law of thermodynamics. You know, everything tends towards disorder. You know, and it does it, settle yeah. down. You know, and the may it will create opportunities if it's, but it's the acceleration is the problem. Yeah,
1: and it's being ready to deal with yeah. that change. And I think that's what, where we need to get a bit better, because then the, specifically at the coast, this is not a system that we can build from first principles and model on our computers you know, in a high-tech fashion to then predict what will happen in any one location in 10, 20, 30 years' time. You know, worked on projects 20 years ago that were trying to do that. And mm-hmm. um, the longest they were able to run their model, you know, looking at every single tide and every single wave that moved around over this beach and then try to simulate where the grains of sand have moved to and, and you, you, you very quickly lose the ability to predict because it's so sensitively dependent on the initial condition you put in and it's also very dependent on just the variability, it's an open system. We simply don't yeah. know exactly which storm's gonna follow which. Whether I mean, you're gonna have two big storms in succession or you whether know, they're gonna be several months apart. So we need to then get much better at observing what's happening and then learning from that. So I, I put my money on the, the kind of data-driven yeah. knowledge that we get, which means that if we look more towards with Mm. the acquisition of data. And that's not just remote sensing, but it's also the digital sensing technology we now have to observe the environment. Mm.
0: But I'd link that back a little bit also to what you were saying earlier about the importance of young people and the public in general having a better understanding of geography. And geography is all about change, as you say. And even though we're saying it's speeded up a little bit, listening to you, to you made, it made me think about uh, this summer I went to Ephesus in Turkey and Ephesus was in a bay and right beside the sea and the ships, Roman ships used to sail in there and now you're, you're driving quite a distance before you reach oh yeah, so many... and, and similarly in Finland years ago I remember going to a castle between Helsinki and Turku, and it used to be on the coast Mm-hmm. It was on an island and protected by the water. Now it, it's, you can't see the sea from it. So things have always been changing, yeah. but just a, a bit faster.
1: Yeah. And and you always have, um, you know, regional variations in mm. that. You know, those all those examples can be explained through yeah. tectonics. And sure. you know, mm. So we tend to talk about these things in a very general sense. And actually it requires you to have very very local knowledge to yeah. to you know manage the impacts of the future scenarios that might play out in those individual places, and that's where I think geography also comes in. It's kind of, it's it's asking these questions as, as to this is the general principle, mm. but if we apply this general principle to this location versus this location, you know what 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 are the different things we have to think about? What are the what are yeah. the factors that cause us to have this variability in space? Yeah,
2: that's the key kind of takeaway. I'm getting from our talk, you know, that mm. it's this generality. Or, yeah, it's kind of observation, and it's such it's so diverse. You know, the model there is problem. There is no pure scientific mathematical model that that could that could match it, and you just have to keep to keep people working with it, trying to improve and being aware. And there seems to be opportunities for kind of citizen science and crowdsourcing of information. If people could be observing, the would be great to get all the primary schools in Ireland and the coast to start sending you data.
1: Yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I imagine. I think, I mean, the great thing about that is I was just involved in a project in the UK that um, had artists on board and uh, you know, local communities were very much engaged with the science, and if you mm. do that, you can mm. you have two benefits. You get data that way, but you that you can use for this asking science, answering scientific questions, but you can also actually start to find solutions towards some of these climate change impacts much better because you've actually, in the process, educated or worked with communities who maybe didn't have an understanding. Of what you were doing beforehand you have you have to communicate that you yeah. they have to communicate back to you how they see particular interventions in affecting them mm-hmm. and then you can feed that back into your solution building so it needs to be this kind of you cooperation what, that
2: reminds me there is a legal aspect of intertidal zone I don't know what it's like in the UK but it's just but you know the way in Ireland the title, nobody can own the title zone. Is it the sa- same in the UK? Do you know? I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of a legal the, the question.
1: Crown, the crown. Um, oh, yeah, oh, and yeah. That's Very that. good. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you go to <laughs>
2: other countries. You know when you go to Italy in America and you yeah. find private beaches? Yeah. You know, it's the most frustrating thing. You go somewhere <laughs> and you, this beach, you cannot go on it unless you pay or you're a member. I mean, in Ireland, that does not happen. Yeah. You know, people try and stop access. I know Donald Trump.
0: Because they say, maybe the occasional Don't golf course in Clare, <laughs> and player, but I
2: have walked across because I know that beach well, and we always everybody makes a point of walking across it. Right. You can, I mean, you can because mm. there's a right of way, but for access, but yeah, but that that, that could be a legal aspect to it. But what you can yeah. do,
1: yeah, the the role of boundaries, you know, mm. think, yeah. Yeah, we have the conference of Irish geographers in here in Dublin in May at the end of May. Yeah. And it's very much the theme is kind of boundaries and borders. Oh, okay. so you know, yeah.
2: you know. yeah. And they're changing then. If the tide is changing, somebody um, needs to maybe look at if water levels are rising as to where it's moving. Yeah. yeah. as to who owns. That's another. Yeah. It's all about these convergence and cross-discipline. Get the legal departments involved. But, you know,
1: also, yeah. I mean, at the coast, I work a lot on coastal ecosystems, yeah. and they often fall under some sort of... Um, Conservation designation. So you have the sites of special scientific Mm -hmm. interest, all the special protected areas, you know, Mm -hmm. and and, uh all of the European habitats um regulations and so on. And and there there are examples where you have designated habitat that's actually migrated out of the area. (laughs) designated. So what is being protected is no longer the thing yeah, yeah, that's, that's, there. that's meant to be protected that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm.
0: If people wish to get in touch with you online about your research or some of your work um, how, how could they reach you or find out more?
1: Um, so they're very welcome to send me an email which is online okay. on the Trinity website so it's yeah. I. so m-o-e-l-e-r-i at tcd.ie and um, there's also um, a web link um, if people find me on the Trinity College yeah, page. And we can add these to the, pod, to we the, will.
2: To the link as well. Yeah. Sure.
0: And just finally, we all often ask people what would success look like with regard to your research or the direction of your work over the next five years or so.
1: So I would like to see uh, myself involved in research projects that that successfully combine the political interest with the private sector, with the scientific, uh, intellectual drive that sort of motivates all of us really to find sustainable solutions to the threats that climate change bring to us at the coast. But I'd also like to see more commitment and projects that are really, truly uh, cross-disciplinary and um, hopefully run through and within geography departments. Okay,
2: that's great. Well, listen, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks very Mm -hmm. much indeed. Fantastic.